from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. Pushing yields while protecting the soil. And we have to keep that topsoil because if we lose it, uh, you can't grow good crops on rocks. It's that simple. Meet another of this year's American Soybean Association Conservation Legacy Award winners as farmers overseas continue to protest. We are struggling for, for dignity. A look at what's at stake as the industry gathers in Houston with an eye on the future. Coverage from this year's Commodity Classic right now on Ag Day. Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the testing grounds meet the proving grounds. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Welcome to this year's Commodity Classic from Houston, Texas, where farmers from across the country are gathering for four days to check out the exhibits at the trade show here, as well as hear from top industry analysts about the year ahead. This year's theme, exploring new frontiers in agriculture. And that's what we'll be doing along with convention goers here this week. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. The entire Ag Day team is here this week in Houston covering Commodity Classic from all angles, and that includes sorghum. Ag Day's Michelle Rugg joins me, and Michelle, USDA and its Ag Outlook Forum is calling for farmers to plant about 7 million acres of sorghum this year, and Chinese demand for sorghum has been solid lately. Yeah, that's right, Clinton, and here to visit about that is Tim Lust. He is CEO of the National Sorghum Growers Association, and Tim, really nice to see that China demand coming back at the sorghum market. Absolutely. Uh, certainly an important market to us, and uh, certainly as uh, we get into a time of year where we're uh, already putting sorghum in the ground in South Texas, exciting to see Chinese purchases uh, continuing to come through and those shipments continuing to go. Let's also talk about your priorities for 2024 for sorghum, including farm bills got to be one of them. Absolutely. I, I think started in 23, but certainly in 24 we're here. Uh, need more farm in the farm bill. Obviously, when we look at the economics on the farm and uh, where, where policy is at, uh, need resources. That's a tough battle. Uh, obviously, an election year, tough process, but one worth fighting for. So we'll be heavily focused there. And you have your eyes on biofuels in that market, too. Absolutely. When we look at uh, uh, what was in the IRA and, and what 45Z rules can mean and, and just what the ethanol industry means to sorghum overall and, and U.S. agriculture, uh, just certainly very significant rules and, and getting that Greek model right and making sure that uh, the models are in place and that sorghum's represented for uh, the carbon friendly crop that it is, uh, something very important to us. And we talked about acres as well, and the mix is going to be different this year with prices. So where will sorghum fall out? You know, I think uh, we're, we're called about even, I think, at this point in time. I know uh, certainly seeing increase in acres in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. Grain is already in the ground, and uh, a little bit uh, as we go further north, uh, kind of see how the spring goes. Uh, a lot of wheat that's out there, but as always, there's a lot of questions on what happens on some of those wheat acres, and, and uh, so we'll see, but uh, optimistic that at, at the least we're flat. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tim, and you have a great commodity classic. That is Tim Lutz, CEO of the National Sorghum Growers Association here at Commodity Classic. All right, thanks, Michelle. Corn farmers here at Commodity Classic have high hopes for the next big thing in ethanol, sustainable aviation fuel. And as more airlines look to switch to SAF, the ethanol industry says more tax credits are needed. And a possible announcement here later this week could provide more clarity for corn farmers. 
It's all about the GREEK model, which stands for Greenhouse Gases Regulated Emissions and Energy Use and Transportation Model. The big question is if the model will make the ethanol to jet fuel pathway clear for corn-based ethanol in the years ahead. An announcement is expected Friday, which is the same day EPA Administrator Michael Regan will be here at Commodity Classic. So, exactly what is the GREEK model? That's what we asked Farm Journal economist and the host of Agritalk, Chip Flory. The GREEK model leans more favorable to corn-based ethanol than some of the old models that are saying that while we've taken much more ground out of other areas of agricultural production and put it into corn production. Now, Flory points out this could have implications beyond just the U.S., but also Brazil. And talk about a temperature shift. Bismarck, North Dakota, dealing with snow and single-digit temperatures on Tuesday. Quite a dramatic shift from Monday when temperatures were in the 60s. In fact, it's reported to be the biggest temperature drop within a 24-hour period on record. But North Dakota isn't alone in this dramatic shift. The winter storm is continuing to press east. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht is tracking it for us. Yeah, the major headlines across the nation having to do with winter returning. And it's not just uh, winter gradually coming in. It's spring and severe weather transitioning into winter in and across the United States. Trough, but also that cold air starting to dig back in from the northwest down to the southeast. And where the two air masses meet, that is the battleground for not only possibility of some heavy snow, but also you know, some strong thunderstorms or heavy downpours right along the cold front. That's what you're seeing lighting up Wednesday at 6 p.m. Once the system moves out, these white lines go back up here to the north, something we're going to talk more about. Another ridge of high pressure will be building in over the plains including the Midwest, that warm-up will come back. So it's, once again, a short stint with winter before we get those above-average temperatures back in the forecast. This is Thursday at 5 a.m. We're going to be watching another that piece of energy coming in and across the United States. Time on that looks to be Sunday and a little bit into Monday of next week. And planters are continuing to roll in Texas. Craig at Temple, Texas, saying he was putting a crop into the dust. We've seen a lot of farmers in Texas busy planting over the last couple of weeks. I'll have more on your forecast coming up. In Washington, Congress is continuing to debate the possibility of providing more aid to Ukraine. It's money Ukraine says is critical to keeping Black Sea grain shipments safe. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky saying that without new U.S. military aid, his country would be unable to defend a Black Sea shipping corridor that has allowed the country to export millions of tons of grain to global markets. So what success we had on the Black Sea, maybe not everybody saw it, but it was success. We destroyed their ships, we opened Black Sea, not totally, but anyway, we made and created the new route in the Black Sea, uh, which gave for today about 30 million tons of grain and other agricultural products. And farmer protests continue in Europe, this time in Brussels, as EU agriculture ministers meet. Farmers burn tires and block the streets with tractors. They're protesting what they see as cheap agricultural products coming from outside the EU, including Ukraine. Several agriculture federations are saying the European Commission has not come far enough to meet their demands. We've been protesting indeed for many weeks uh, because we've seen the cost of production increase and the prices that we are being given uh, for our production are not increasing. So it's becoming very hard to make a living out of uh, farming in, uh, in Europe 
So these protests are basically for a fair income. We are struggling for, for dignity. We produce food, everybody needs food, and we also take care of the nat nature, and so we deserve to be treated with decency. Now, farmer demonstrations have also caused disruptions in Spain, Italy, France, and Germany. Can the wheat market overcome recent pricing pressure? We'll talk about that coming up next in Markets Now. And later, one farmer has his eye on the future when it comes to conservation. Well, a tax deadline is looming for farmers. The March 1st deadline is quickly approaching, and farm CPA Paul Niefer says there could be a big change to bonus depreciation. Niefer says Congress is working to pass a tax act which will change bonus depreciation from 80% to 100%, and even though the bill likely won't be passed until after Friday's deadline, he's encouraging farmers to act now. If this law goes through, but the law's not going to be passed until after March 1st. So what should a farmer do? A farmer could pay in an estimated tax payment right now just to, to eliminate that penalty from accruing any further, or they could elect to file their tax return, pay the tax based on 80%, and then if the law does go through, they can then file not an amended return, they file what we call a superseding return. The last return that you filed before the due date is what the IRS uses. Niefer says if the equipment you buy is less than a million dollars, Section 179 will eliminate the issue anyway, but he says it's something farmers should definitely be discussing with their tax advisors. Corn continuing an upward swing again on Tuesday, led by gains in wheat. Hagday's Michelle Rook joins us with more in Markets Now. Joining us with markets, Allison Thompson with The Money Farm. Well, Allison, last week, Chicago and Kansas City wheat actually had higher weekly closes when everything else was kind of a, a bloody mess. So do you think there's something going on there in that wheat market? Yeah, and it's been a slow bottom, don't get me wrong, but it does actually look a lot more positive than the other um, other two markets, the corn and soybeans. So hopefully wheat's the one making the turn first. Um, again, do know the fundamentals of wheat do look more supportive than corn and soybeans. Things are tight um, globally and here um, in the U.S. So the market's just trying to find price discovery here um, and figure out what that means. And again, we have planting probably nearing here um, in the next month, I would say, especially up here. We're definitely nice and warm and dry after this week. Uh, but we are talking a lot of guys might actually get into the field the end of March. So we're not quite out of the woods here yet as far as what guys are going to be planting. I know they're talking lower acres this year. Um, but the wheat market needs to figure what, out what that means for the fundamental situation too. So right now, you know, I watch a lot of different things. One of the things I do watch is actually a soybean wheat ratio for spring wheat. Um, it's just kind of like the corn and soybean ratio comparing new crop prices. So September Minneapolis to November um, soybeans. And right now we are actually favoring wheat. I think wheat has a ways to go, though, to make producers see that. So as we get into close to planting, even with the nice weather, you know, it does favor some spring wheat planting when it's early. But again, we just need to see prices go up for guys to make it feasible. Um, and a little bit more attractive here to plant during the growing season. The other thing that's been kind of a telltale sign is we're starting to take carry out of the back end of this market, aren't we? And we yes, yes, we are. We used we did have um, actually over the past week took a lot of it out. And actually, there's a lot of talk that we could actually go inverted. And it definitely could. Um, seeing the spreads tight like that definitely tells us there's demand somewhere along the line. 
The big thing is, is we have to get these funds to cover their short position though, right? So it's probably gonna be a black swan if not our growing season here that maybe starts um, shifting their thinking. Um, but until that, they will probably continue to sell the rally. Thanks for joining us, Allison Thompson with The Money Farm. We'll have more updates in the room. Now we're going to go ahead and take a look at uh, kind of what we're expecting for our Thursday, the Wednesday into our Thursday. This is Thursday at uh, 2 a.m. This low pressure system starts to wrap up and move to the east, and you're seeing a, a decent trough. If this was January or February, well, it is February, we'd be looking at uh, a cold air outbreak. But the way this season has gone, the way the jet stream has behaved, with ridge high pressure building once again back out to the west, that's keeping this cold air rather short, short-lived, rather than sticking around for an extended period of time. So there's Thursday at 2 a.m. That starts to lift out. Ridge of high pressure builds back in. A couple of things we're going to see with this, back towards the Gulf Coast states, we're going to open up. There's just a bit of energy. You see how these two lines kind of separate coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. You start to see some moisture being transported back to the south and to the southeast. Friday morning into Friday afternoon. From a, a bigger standpoint, a Saturday into Sunday, that next low pressure system takes shape back over here towards the Rockies. That is our next system coming across the United States as a low pressure system. Uh, timing out to be Sunday, but especially next week, we're going to hone in on that part of the forecast. Kind of a similar pattern to what we had this week, just not as extreme, at least not looking like it right now. The jet stream Friday and into Saturday. Again, this little U right here is the reason for some of the shower and rain activity back to the south and to the southeast. By Saturday and Sunday, ridging across two-thirds of the United States, temperatures warming up, and there's that next system starting to take shape. As we've talked about before, the stronger the ridge, the more likely this trough and corresponding low pressure system is going to work more north rather than east. Start off the uh, Gallup. New Mexico, sunny, high around 54 degrees. That's actually right along the old route 66, a best drop. AM showers, high around 69 degrees, Louisiana. Mexico, Missouri, sunny, high of 40 degrees. People here at Commodity Classic know the export market is a huge part of farmers' success. We'll see how much the U.S. pork export market is expected to grow in the future coming up next. Plus, tricky soil conditions are no match for one upper Midwest farmer working hard to make conservation a focal point on his farm. See what he's doing coming up in the country. Increasing exports is a big topic of discussion here at Commodity Classic, and a new forecast is calling for exports of major meats to grow through 2033, but soon pork exports could surpass exports of U.S. chicken. USDA projecting that by 2026, U.S. pork exports are expected to surpass the record of 7.28 billion pounds set in 2022. You can see that highlighted on this graph there in red. Now, the agency says gains in U.S. hog production and pork processing are expected to continue to increase the sector's competitiveness around the world. It also says EU policies are expected to cut growth of that region's pork exports, and the U.S. is projected to surpass the EU as the world's leading pork exporter in 2025. But what about prices? USDA's livestock analyst Shale Shagam recently discussed the forecast season-ending average price producers are expected to receive for their meat animals this year, including pork. 
In terms of prices, we are talking about a record high cattle price of about $180 a hundred weight, which is about 2 to 3% higher than it was a year ago. Hog prices will be driven higher, largely supported by expected increases in demand, both domestic and international. A little bit higher poultry price, broiler price being driven by some increased demand in the U.S., offset to a lesser extent by some declines in sales overseas. Turkey, generally weak prices through most of 2024 being driven by demand. So we're looking at a double-digit decline in turkey prices. As for production this year, Shagum predicts declining beef and turkey production, but a 2% increase in pork and a slight increase in broiler meat. All right, up next, he says he farms ugly. But that's not stopping one farmer from winning corn yield contest while making conservation on the farm front and center. See how he does it next in the country. The American Soybean Association Conservation Legacy Awards are brought to you by Valent USA. Real, actionable, sustainable. Valent USA is committed to helping growers meet the demand for sustainably grown crops. All this week on Ag Day and here at Commodity Classic, the American Soybean Association is celebrating the farmers leading the way when it comes to conservation. Now, as part of that, they have named four regional winners of the Conservation Legacy Award. This morning, Ag Day's Michelle Rook introduces us to the Upper Midwest winner. And we're looking out for the future production of this farm, and I want it to be better than when I got it. That's Jacob Caterley's conservation philosophy, when his father started on their farm in Judah, Wisconsin, back in the 60s. Actually, when my dad bought this in 65, uh, the internal fences were pulled and it was contour stripped. At that time, he was doing minimum till, but when Jacob bought the land in 2005, he put what he'd learned as an agronomist into action, going 100% no-till, even with tricky soil conditions. Most of this farm is New Glarus silt loam and it's highly eroded. There's a lot of places there's less than a foot of soil left and then it's bedrock. And we have to keep that topsoil because if we lose it, uh, you can't grow good crops on rocks. It's that simple. Jacob works each season to find a solution to get the most out of his crops, even corn on corn. He says the biggest change he made was knife rolls in the corn head to break down the corn stock residue. Once you get them down on the ground so they'll degrade, then next spring you go through with a corn planter or the drill and it's not a problem. Cover crops are part of the mix to boost yields and he plants row crops right into the growth. Plant six varieties of things and, uh, and then the wheat is seven. So we got peas and oats, sorghum sedan, tillage radish, hairy vetch, and red clover. But the covers are adding to organic matter. In seven years, I've built a half a percent of organic matter. That's also led to higher fertility levels on his farm and pushed his yields. We've done some testing and we've made anywhere from 80 to 100 pounds of N for the corn crop the next year. And most years, uh, corn following that wheat with that cover crop is an extra 20 bushel. Jacob says they farm ugly, but it's helped him place in the top 10 several times in NCGA's yield contest no-till division. His highest, 273 bushels to the acre. Nothing makes me madder than to have somebody say no-till, no-yield. So I'm really trying to prove them wrong. He also has 10 acres of CRP land and has constructed five acres of waterways. When you're doing no-till and cover crops, I don't see these waterways filling in with any soil. So they're, once you get them established, you're pretty much, they'll, they'll stay put. 
Jacob is honored to be named a Conservation Legacy Award winner, but says he's just part of the solution. All of us farmers can have an impact to make the world a better place. Congratulations to Jacob Caterley, the 2024 Upper Midwest ASA Conservation Legacy Award winner. All right, thanks, Michelle, and we'll have much more coming from Commodity Classic here in Houston, Texas, tomorrow morning, right here on Ag Day. From all of us, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Have a great day.